chapter 5, turn there, excuse me, 6 in your Bibles, if you have them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read verses uh, 3 through 10. Yeah, actually, at this time, too, we got to dismiss kids. Thank you for that reminder. So you're turning there in your Bible. Kids, you're dismissed. We're dealing with a whole lot of variables this morning. I just found out my slides were wrong back there. So you got to bear with us this morning. We will make it through. And God's Word does not depend on slides, but it does depend on kids going back there to hear the message. So have a fun time, kids, in your Sunday school classes. Thank you, teachers. It's fun to hear that noise. It means little kids are hearing about Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 3 through 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one thing about being an expository preacher, which means you're someone who goes through the word, through books of the Bible, is it means you cannot avoid hard topics. I mean, already in 1 Timothy, we've talked about roles of men and women. We've already talked about slavery. Uh, Today is the all-popular topic of money. So that's just one of the things, if you preach through books of the Bible, you cannot avoid. And while it's hard, at the same time, it also means we're going to cover topics that the Lord felt we needed to talk about and hear about. And one of those today is money. It was a joy to have Pastor Tim Thule visit last week and give a challenging uh, and encouraging message to us on the plurality of elders, their appointment, their honor, Uh, and the mutual accountability and support that goes on between the sheep and the shepherds in a local congregation. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that message, I encourage you to look at the all-church email that went out on Friday and find that link and and click it uh, so you can take a look and and hear uh, a word from Pastor Tim. Well, what are you like in the morning if you don't get your cup of coffee? What are you like? I know what I'm like in a fog some of you don't drink coffee, it's like, I don't know. But those of you do, every morning I know I, I, I wake up, sometimes I go to bed actually thinking about the cup of coffee in the morning. You do that. You, I, I, I wake up craving a good cup of coffee, and I'm sure those of you who drink coffee, most of you do as well. But it's that first sip or two, isn't it, that just tastes 
so great? Oh, why do I crave it? Why do you crave it? Because you know you do if you're a coffee drinker. Well, I like the taste, right? You can say I like the taste. But even more than that, my body has gotten used to that caffeine jolt that that cup of coffee gives it. It gets me going in the morning, but I don't ever think about that in the morning. It's kind of like a blind spot. You just don't even think about that. You just think, I got to have my cup of coffee. I like the taste of it. You don't think about the fact that your body's used to that caffeine. It's a blind spot. Don't ever think about the fact that I'm actually addicted to something, do you? And yet it's in our cravings, things that we crave, that many times we have our biggest blind spots. Biggest blind spots, like when you put your blinker on on I-5 or 205 and you begin to pull over and you get that, uh, that honk because they were in your blind spot. You say, well, where did they come from? I didn't even see them. But that you know they were in your blind spot. Well, this morning, Paul addresses the cravings and desires of a heart with a huge blind spot. A huge blind spot. The false teachers at Ephesus where Timothy is ministering, where Paul's writing to, they served this morning as kind of a springboard for us to get to the, the, the topic of the destruction that a, that a craving and blind spot for money causes us. Well, we're called to find contentment and satisfaction in Christ. So we're going to answer the question this morning, what do you crave? What do you crave by looking at both the blind spots and really the sin of materialism that we all suffer from, that's all of us now, and the contentment that Christ offers as the antidote. So hopefully you've got your outline and your Bible open, whether it's on a book or smartphone or tablet, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we're going to look first at the false teachers who were driven by multiple cravings. They were driven by multiple cravings, as we're going to see that these false teachers craved controversy. They craved quarrels, and ultimately they craved material gain, stuff. They had cravings, and Paul even uses that word a couple times today. This is the third time, the third time in this letter now that Paul addresses the false teachers that were in the church. Remember, they, uh, as a quick, just jogging our memory here, they were swerving from the truth into vain and pointless discussions. They distorted the law of God by forbidding marriage for some of the women in the church and forbidding eating certain types of food, thereby denying the goodness of God's creation. Well, Paul now speaks of an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels, for a good mix-up in the church, and, and not only that, but money. Verses 3 to 5, which are our first few verses today in the original language, they're actually just one long run-on sentence that just kind of goes from bad to worse. But as Paul begins in verse 2, he says, teach, the end of verse 2, urge these things because they're warnings for us as well. Teach and urge, he says, Timothy, these very things. So let's look at three warnings underneath this first point this morning. Deviating doctrine divides is the first one. Deviating doctrine divides us. Well, how did these false teachers deviate? Listen to verse 3 again. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up. How they deviate, they divided, they departed, excuse me, from the healthy words, which we're going to talk about more in a minute, from healthy words. So their words were unhealthy. Their words were sick. Their words were full of unhealthy cravings. They loved to see people disagree and fight over minutiae. Why? Well, because as Paul describes them in verse 4, he says they're, they're, they're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. They don't understand anything. It, it's a deadly combination, but especially in the church, Paul puts together here arrogance with ignorance. Put those two together in life or in the church or anywhere. Or I love one translation I read this week said that called them pompous ignoramuses. <laughs> you put those, those are a dangerous combi- combination, arrogance and ignorance. And look at the end of verse four for the division that the deviation produced there at the end of verse four of chapter 6. It's just all these words, envy, dissension, slander. It's like this downward staircase spiraling, spiraling down, evil suspicions and, and, and constant friction down, down, town. Produced all these things. And then verse 4 says, a people even. It produced a congregation, depraved and deprived of the truth, he says, with these unhealthy sick, kind of anemic words they were speaking, they turned away from the healthy words of Jesus. They turned away from the healthy words of Jesus is another way to put it. Their words were unhealthy, like a, like a, a, a gangrene sore that's kind of oozing pus. infected, and it's graphic, but we need to set and see the destruction and death that can be caused when we leave behind, Paul says, the healthy words of Jesus. Sound words, verse 3 says, of our Lord Jesus, and not just Jesus, but Messiah he's called, Jesus Christ here. In verse 4, or in verse 3, excuse me, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so here's what Paul is telling the church. He's telling us to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, another way to put it that we talk a lot about here. Building a healthy church is centered around Jesus. It happens around Jesus as we gather around Jesus together, sing about him, pray to and about him, and preach him. That's how a healthy church is built. He's the center of the Bible we've talked about from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 21. It's all about Him. He's the center of everything. So to minimize Christ in the church, which happens all the time, or or, or to build our, our, our platform off of something else, even something that would be good and biblical, To let anything else be the primary foundation or rock or cornerstone of the church is certain death. And like I said, those can be good things even. That might even be biblical things, a a social issue, 
a moral issue, an ethical issue, a political issue, sometimes even eschatology, end times issues, all good things. But if you build your platform off of those things, rather than Christ, Paul says here and warns the church, it's unhealthy, and it leads to a downward spiraling staircase of destruction, he says. He says, warn, teach, and urge these things. And so that's my job today to do that. We don't primarily build off anything else. Anything else is unhealthy. It doesn't mean we can't talk about other things. Of course we can, but we can't build off anything else. We have to build off the cornerstone of Jesus Christ because whatever cornerstone you build off of, guess what it does? It sets the line, the agenda, the motion for the entire rest of the church. So if it's this issue or that issue or this or that, that's going to set the course. So Paul says, if it's Christ and you build off him, that's how you build a healthy church. Anything else only brings division and death, really, is the language of this passage. The only thing we want, in other words, then, dividing or offending people at Bethany Church is the gospel. That's the only thing we want to offend somebody here. Is the gospel. And if that happens, then we know, okay, they're hearing something. They're hearing truth. That's what we want. Not sports teams, not family allegiances, not buying foreign or American or political or end times views, school board decisions, not country of origin, where'd you come from, or family of origin. None of those things. Those are all valuable, sure, and important. They can be important things, but we don't ever want those to be things that divide us in church life like these false teachers were doing with all these things that they've turned into primary things. The false teachers craved to be known by these unhealthy things rather than by the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. What do you crave to be known as? How, do you, how would you like to be known or remembered? Great friend, a great cook, great financial manager, a good housekeeper, a great employee, a great, uh, a great parent, a thoughtful gift giver, a great joke teller. All of us have got things that, uh, in our bag of identity and things that we would crave and want to be known as. I mean, all good things in and of themselves. But when we crave something now, talking about a really strong desire... We become unhealthy, and it drives our, our, our life, our decisions, our actions. That's why Paul is emphasizing this so strongly. Crave Christ and, and, and build and drive off of Him. It's a great question. We, some of, one of our songs, they had this, this real strong language of craving, desiring Christ's return, and, and desiring Him in our life. And it just, I ponder that question this week. Do I crave Christ and His words? You crave Christ and His words. I know there's things in your life, like a good cup of coffee, right, that we crave. But do you crave Christ and His words? And so then as a church, then, are we, so, are we willing as a church and as individuals to just saturate so deeply in Jesus, the one we crave, and His words, according to godliness that Paul says in this chapter, that it will, we will let it seep into and change even, even those tightest corners of your heart, those things that you're just wrapped around, 
The Bible calls them idols. Things that you crave. Are we, are we willing to do that? Or direct us as a church and even change in time, helping people follow Jesus. Are we willing? Do we crave him enough? I was thinking like this week, what if we made some radical decisions as a ministry staff and elder team with the direction of our church because we thought this, this was a, a direction Christ was asking us to go? I'm not saying we are, but let's just say hypothetically, what if we did, based upon the words of Christ and building our foundation upon him and following him alone, what if we did that? And what if our elders came back and said, you know, loving Christ and following him means sponsoring an Afghan refugee family in Canby, even if we found out they were Muslim? What, what if we decided as a church that, you know, we, we prayed about this, so not, 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 not just flippant decisions, but prayed and sought the Lord and said, you know what, we're going to increase our mission budget from 10%, which it is, to 35% of our overall budget, if it meant following Jesus and helping others follow him. Uh, what if Jesus asks you to give of your own personal stuff because we've equated God's blessing too much with financial gain? Now, I'm not saying we would do un, uh, unwise things or unvetted decisions or unprayed for decisions as a team, a ministry team or elder. I'm not saying that. I'm just hypothetically bringing up what if it was a move that hurt us a bit or, or caused some sacrifice for us? to give up something. Because that was the problem with the false teachers. That was their big issue. They didn't want to give up anything to follow Jesus. In fact, they were using God to gain. That was the problem. They were using God to gain. Paul writes it in the, in the words here, they looked at godliness, living for God, as a way to get stuff things, material gain, which means they didn't serve God just to get God. They served God to get the things of God, the goods, the blessing as they saw it. But I know we're, we are tempted by this too. I know I am because it's the default mode of external religion and of the human heart to, to sometimes serve God to get the things of God, not just God himself. That's a challenging one. Most of the time, we tend to categorize sin in the church in our lives as making sure we don't break a list of rules. Don't get drunk. Don't lust. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't, don't, don't steal. But what if sin actually goes deeper than that? Not just breaking a list of rules. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Do you remember that story? That's a fantastic story that Jesus tells in uh, a few other parables of the lost coin. And, and he tells this story about these two brothers who were serving their father. And the younger son goes and asks for the inheritance from his father while he's still alive, which is not a good thing to do, right? Ask for your inheritance while your, your parent is still alive. It's basically wishing them dead. He goes and asks for the inheritance, and he spends it on booze and on women, is what he does. Uh, a life of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, basically. <laughs> he takes his inheritance and he blows it. And you and I read that parable, and we look at it and we go, that surely is the sinner, isn't he? 
so clear, so obvious, breaking the rules. But it's actually the elder brother I want us to think about for a minute. It was the other brother that stayed home, that didn't leave, that didn't ask for his heritage. Remember, the younger brother comes home in that story. He comes home repenting. He comes home sorrowful. He comes home to the father, and the father runs out to greet him even, doesn't wait for him to get to him. He throws himself around him, forgives him, and and throws him a fantastic party with all his friends. Sounds fantastic, huh? Unless you're the elder brother. Remember the elder brother? He's furious, and here was his response. He was angry, and he refused to go in. That's to the party. And his father came out and entreated him. He said, come in. But he answered his father, look, look now. That's not how you speak to your father in a respectful, honor community of uh, New Testament times. Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son not my brother, this son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you go out and you kill the fatted calf for him. See, he kept all the rules. He was a good boy. And now he feels like because of that, he has the right to tell the father what he deserves and how the father should use his wealth. It's an elder brother. And guess what? Jesus is making the point for us that this too is sin. This too is just another way to control and manipulate God. Oh, sure, there's the the way of the younger brother. Of course, we we get that. They they get rid of God, really. Control God by saying, I don't need you. I'm going to do whatever I want in my life. Give me the inheritance. But this too is another, maybe even more insidious way. One is to live embracing sin. The other is to be so good, I don't need Jesus. I've kept all the rules. And the latter, this one, is where those in the church struggle more. Imagining that godliness is a means of of gain. If I'm good, God owes me. How do you know if this is you? (laughs) How do you know if you have a problem with materialism, serving God to get the things of God rather than just to get God himself? Well, here's a couple questions to ask yourself. What happens to you in your life when things go wrong or you lose stuff or the money runs thin? Well, if you're an elder brother, that's this guy here, if you're an elder brother who feels like she's been living up to her end of the bargain and living up to God's standards, who do you get mad at? God, right? I don't deserve this. Do you know how much I've done for you? Do, I, I've kept, I've obeyed and kept all the rules. I've been good. I've denied myself so many things that you get furious at God. But if you're an elder brother who feels like he's been failing a lot and realizing, man, I haven't been living up to God's standards, who do you hate then? yourself. Yourself. I should have been better. I should have done more. Then I I would really have God's blessing. And so what ends up happening? You become a a pendulum swinging between anger at God, anger at self, depending on just how you're doing that day. Does that sound like gospel living? No. It's elder brother living. It's serving God for gain, to get the things of God. 
And so you swing between, as Tim Keller said, I hate thee, God, or I hate me on this pendulum ride. Do you serve God because you love stuff more? Let's look at what Paul says about the love of stuff and money because that's where he takes us in this passage as he uses the false teachers as a springboard to, to jump into the topic of our relationship with stuff and money. Our second section is an unhealthy desire for stuff leads to a certain destruction of lives. And a healthy desire for stuff leads to this uh, uh, kind of another downward staircase of destruction. We'll jump down to 9 and 10. We'll go back to the other verses later. But look at 9 and 10 again with me. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, in, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, it's a graphic language, plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and, and, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Like I said, it's like another downward spiraling staircase of destruction. If you desire money, crave it. You'll be tempted, then trapped with harmful desires. You'll find yourself doing things you never thought you would do into this world of ruin and destruction. Like Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it, it profit you, me, to gain everything? If I could have everything, if I could look as far as my eye could see if I owned it all, but then at the end I lost my soul, would it have been worth it all? Jesus doesn't think so. It, it's a craving that verse 10 says will pierce you through. It'll pierce you through the gut. Materialism is damning, in other words, to use strong language. A craving for wealth or riches, an unhealthy desire for stuff. It leads to the destruction of lives this staircase goes down to. We see things, we want it, and then you get it. And then what happens so often? Yeah, you're like, eh. You unwrap the new toy and you're like, eh. Okay, it's like you get this jolt of endorphins for a good three or four minutes, right? And you're like, ugh. And afterwards, you're like, you're left kind of empty. It's like eating cotton candy. It looks so good, and then you put it in your mouth, and it's like, it's gone. It, where did it go? It dissolved in your mouth, actually. I didn't even swallow anything. How's that possible? Probably shouldn't be eating it then. It's probably some, I don't know what it is. Sugar, I guess, but it's gone. Or, or, or another way to put it, it'd be like, um, you're so thirsty, and you're caught, you're stuck out on a raft at sea, and you, you, you're so thirsty, you drink salt water. What does that do? might quench your thirst for about 30 seconds, and then you're like, the salt makes you more thirsty, and you end up dying. You end up thirstier in the end. And as we talk about this today, I know most of us are saying, well, remember blind spots? I don't have a problem with money or greed or craving to be rich, do I? Look at Jesus' words in Luke 12. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's, that's a desire. That's a craving for things. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his, his possessions. I like the NIV actually translation. That's the ESV. The NIV actually says, watch out. Be on guard for greed. That's what it says in the NIV. You, you know, with, with other sins and temptations, Jesus doesn't say, watch out. Be on guard. 
He doesn't say, watch out, be on guard for adultery. Why? Pretty obvious when it happens, right? Pretty obvious. But here, the love of money and things and greed, it is our blind spot. It is your blind spot. We can't see it, but we probably all have it. Do you know why, do you know why most of us in this room, if we were asked, like, do you have a problem with greed? Do you know why most of us would probably say, well, I don't think so. I don't have a problem with materialism. Do you know why that is? Because when we think about it, we compare ourselves with others we can see, those around us. It's pretty easy to think I don't have a problem with materialism and money and greed when I can drive on 99 towards Oregon City and I can look across the river there over into West Lynn and those, those homes are there and I can look and go, I don't have a problem with greed. He's got a problem with greed. She's got a problem with stuff over there on the other side of the river, not me. I'm on the candy side, the good side. But in reality, we are all rich in the United States. We are all almost kind of filthy rich in the United States compared if we compare ourselves to the world, not just the neighbor across the river. A recent study quoted a sample of about 1,500 Americans and asked, they asked them, what do you think the average income is across the world in American dollars? And most people said about 20,000, when in reality, it's about 2,100. That was our perspective. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we compare ourselves. And, and the fact is, living in the United States actually puts most of us in the top 10%, probably anybody in this room actually, of wealth in the world. Think about it. Now, this, is, this is not today to necessarily make you feel guilty for money, because we'll see where we're going to go with this. But it's important for us to think about this. It's more how we use money and our relationship with it. Here's another fact I was reading this week. The fact that Christians give about... 2.5% of their income in tithe, when in the Great Depression it was 3.3. In average congregation, only about 10 to 25% tithe. Now, this is not a sermon on tithing per se, but, but how we use our money matters to us and shows the state and cravings of our hearts. That's what this is about. And one of the ways is obviously tithing at church but all the ways we use our, our money. Now, as we continue to discuss here, let's remember, Paul writes, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money actually is a grace of God in the way that it organizes the world. We don't go all, all out and pillage and steal to get things, right? It's a, it's a grace, actually. It organizes the world. It's the reason there's not anarchy in Canby. We have a system and a way we do things. It's, it can actually be a grace of God. So money is not the problem, it's the craving and love of money. It's our heart's level of desire and what we do with it, which, with uh, what God gives us. What are we actually craving for and what will make us content? If it's money, then it becomes a problem. The words of desire and crave and love, those are all words of the heart, words of idolatry, words that mean that this thing really matters to you. But here's the thing. 
with money, it's not usually just the love of money, but it's actually a love beneath that love, or you might call a sin beneath the sin. We've, we've, we've talked about that language before, the sin beneath the sin here at Bethany Church. Or not just the idolatry of money, it's usually a secondary idol underneath that drives that craving for money. Here's some of those. Some people love money because it's a way to control their world and life. And so that kind of person doesn't spend anything. So they crave money to control their world and life. Some people crave underneath looking beautiful. So they spend, they love money and spend it to, 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 to make themselves look beautiful. Some people crave underneath prestige and, and, and success and access to these elite circles that money can buy. So they crave money when really underneath it's that they crave. Some crave leisure. Leisure is great and good, but leisure can be a really big, ugly idol too. Some people crave leisure in place, so they love money and crave money to get all the toys it gets them. I was reading a story about a counselor this week in a book on, this, on the topic of money who was doing some marital counseling around money, and the husband was just furious with his wife. And he sat there with the counselor, and she loved money. She loved to spend money on buying clothes and jewelry. And the husband said to the counselor, he said, she is so selfish, and she just spends it on herself. She spends it on all these frivolous things, this money and these clothes, and da-da-da-da-da. Well, her craving was attraction, right? Looking beautiful and pretty, and so she spent it on herself. Now, his issue was he couldn't spend or give away at all. And the counselor said this to him, do you see... By not spending or giving away anything, by socking away every penny, you're being just as selfish. You're spending absolutely everything on your need to feel secure, protected, and in control. They both had a craving for money for two absolutely different reasons. In other words, you got to look beneath the craving. You got to look beneath the surface of your cravings to see what's really going on. We have to look at the sin beneath the sin, especially with money. And if that's the case, and we do that, we begin to understand Jesus' words for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money will follow the treasure of your heart, and the treasure of your heart will define your relationship with money. Let me say that again. Your money will follow the treasure of your heart, and the treasure of your heart will define your relationship with money. So what is it for you? Because we all have something. Is it nice toys or gadgets or great food or vacations or cars, the perfect home or clothing or guns or just holding money for security? Now, all okay things in and of themselves, and in fact, we're to enjoy the material world that God gave us. But when it becomes that ultimate thing, you'll find yourself doing things you never thought you would to get it. That's why you see so many like just weird crimes around money. Like, that person did that? You'll do insane things. You see those weird financial downfalls or insurance frauds or different crimes that are centered around getting money or bank things. And you're like, what a weird, that would make a great movie. It usually does. But it's the craving beneath the craving. It's when it becomes everything to you. 
So if the danger of the craving of love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and even it pierces themselves, which means like they, they were spiked on thorns, what do we do? <laughs> what are we sitting here today going, yeah, like, yeah that's, that's, uh, that's me. What do we do to avoid or change our habits in relationship with money? Let's look at our final point. It's to see today that genuine contentment is not found in stuff or, or, or even in yourself, but in Christ, in Christ alone. Paul's words here, going back up now into verses 6 through 8 to finish, they're incredible. He, he doesn't say, you're wrong, false teachers. Godliness is not a means of gain. He doesn't say that. In fact, he ups the ante and says, you know, actually, godliness is a means of great gain. Just not the type of gain you're thinking about, false teachers. It just depends on what type of gain. Here's verse 6 again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a means to great spiritual gain, not, not financial gain or, or putting God in your back pocket like a magic genie that he owes you his stuff. It's none of that. It's great gain if you're content with what you have. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we'll, we'll be content. Paul's realistic here. He's realistic. He says, of course, you have to have the necessities to be content in life. That's okay. Food, clothing, and, and by that word there, he probably means shelter too, a place to live. Some of those, uh, a home too. And, and we're allowed to enjoy the good stuff of earth. Some of the things we've even mentioned today that be, can become idols. But everything beyond food and clothing and shelter, Paul just says, it's not a necessity. You may have it. God may have given it to you. I mean, beyond food, clothing, and shelter puts a lot of our stuff in that category, doesn't it? A lot of our stuff. Because at the end of the day, or actually the end of your day, whenever that day is, what are you going to take with you? What's going to go with you on that journey? Job said it another way. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's kind of eerie if you think about it. The things we leave behind. I mean, even our body, really. The things we leave behind. Robin and I, from time to time, like to go to estate sales. How many of you like to do that as well? Yeah, that's fun. It's, it's a blast. You know, it's sort of adventurous. You get out there. And, um, but it can be a great exercise in verse 7. We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of this world. Why is that? Well, most of the time in those situations, the owner has passed away. And a lot of times it's the family there working with some company they've hired to get the estate together and just sell the stuff. When you walk through those homes, one of the reasons I love it so much is you walk through those homes, you see a life lived. You see cravings. You see desires. You see belongings. But you don't see the person. 
My favorite estate sale was one where nothing had been touched in this house since about 1972. It was like, it was like a snapshot of time, like a real time warp. That, that's how you time travel, actually. You go to a estate sale of a home that has been touched in 68. Like, it was, real, it was literally like going back in time. It was, real, it was actually pretty cool. But you see there the collection of coffee mugs, the china collection, or the, the closets full of clothes and books and, and DVDs, or how many mason jars can one family need? <laughs> or how many hammers can one man need? It's like 37, I think, is the answer. How many? Like, how many? Do you see where I'm going with this? The moment the person is gone, dead, the stuff just sits there lifeless and gathers dust. There's some apartments, I remember seeing an article a few years back, there was an apartment in like Manhattan in this big building. It had been um, closed up and sealed since like World War II. Nothing had been touched. Like the person just left and the, the newspaper even was open on the kitchen counter. And they walked in, and it was just this, it was just there since 1945 or something. He's gone. She's gone. And what was the stuff really worth then? At the end of the day, Jesus says, don't lay up yourselves for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves, rather, treasures in heaven, where nothing destroys it, moth and rust can't destroy it, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's that verse, there your heart will be also. It means pack light and stuff and pack heavy in Jesus. That's what it means. Pack light and stuff. Be content with bare necessities and, and more content actually in God. Some of us, actually most of us, probably all of us, need a major adjustment with how we relate to our stuff, our money, our giving away of things, and even tithings we put into that, and generosity. But this is way easier said than done, isn't it? When you see what you have or you think about that treasure of yours, it's so much easier said than done. But Paul knew a secret. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul knew a secret in Philippians 4. He said, I've learned... He's not being cocky here. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, there's that word, content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I can have either a lot or a little. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What was the secret? Is it having your pastor berate you into generosity? No, it's not. Is it guilt yourself, try harder? No. It's be content in Christ. That's the secret Paul knew. Verse 3 and verse 6 in our passage today, be content in Christ. Be built upon Him. And to the degree that you are content in Jesus Christ, not with the things of Christ, to that degree it will change your relationship to money and stuff. That's the secret. Not such a big secret, is it? But that's the secret Paul knew. He'd be more generous, less stressed about money, more grateful, willing to not do certain things to gain money. Who had the biggest bank account in history? 
Who do you think it is? Carnegie, Rockefeller, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, not even close. It's Christ. It's Christ himself. In a passage on giving to the Corinthians, Paul doesn't just say, hey, give more because you should be generous. You should just be that way because that's the right thing to do. No, he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 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 richest man that ever lived, for your sake he became a pauper, a pauper, poor, so that by his poverty you can become the wealthiest too. Christ had all things at his disposal. He had the greatest bank account the world has ever seen. Everything was his, and he had all power to do what he wanted with all of it. And if he'd been stingy, if he craved stuff or power or fame or prestige, you and I would die spiritual paupers today. But Jesus sold it all, Paul is saying here. He became poor. He gave it all up. He let it all go because he craved the Father more and you more than stuff. He desired and prized his creatures, you, more. That's what Paul's saying when he says, be content in godliness and the sound words of Jesus Christ. To see, he sold his birthright for you. He was the generous father that gave it all away to the prodigal son before he'd even died. To change the way you relate to money and stuff is not just to double down on your efforts, but to grow in your appreciation and understanding of the gospel. Of Jesus, the richest, becoming the poorest. So if it's craving of security that makes you love money, look to the cross and the security you have there in his work and his word over you. If it's craving for beauty that makes you love money, look at the beauty he gives you just by making you and then putting his righteousness upon you. There's nothing you could do to make yourself more beautiful if you have that. If it's stinginess that makes you love money, look to the generosity of Jesus became poor for you. What do you crave today? What's your relationship to your stuff and money? Because money can't give you actually any of these things. So deepen your craving for him. And you know what will come? The secret. True contentment. I know how to be content with lots and with little. Let's pray. Jesus, make us content in you. It's something we can't do. We sang the words, make my heart believe. Make our hearts believe. Make us trust that you are more valuable than stuff. Make us trust that what awaits us is worth the present sufferings we go through now for the incomprehensible glory that will be revealed to us in the new heaven and the new earth. Let us pack light in things and heavy in you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.